Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Back here in the house of the Lord. For those of you that have been with us all week, it's been an awesome time. And I so thank you for coming back here this morning. And for those of you that are watching online, I just know that you're not staying home because of the rain, sitting there drinking some hot chocolate right now, watching us all here. But uh, no, we love you. I know you're not just there watching the, between good points, watching the Raiders game. You wouldn't be doing that, would you? No way. I know that. But uh, no, the truth of the matter is, you know, how many know this morning that believers in Canada, they would brave the rain, they would brave the snow just to go to church because up there, they're not letting people go to church. Terrible, terrible governmental uh, oversight, overreach, really, and pastors being thrown in jail just for preaching the gospel, folks, I'm telling you. And, well, that's Canada, folks. There's, the only difference is just the grace of God on this country, a good Christian founding. We've still got a few laws and a good Supreme Court, at least for a while. But our administration would do exactly the same as they're doing in Canada. And so I thank the Lord that we're here today and we can be in church. I don't care if it's raining or it's snowing or it's sleeting. We're going to be here. And, uh, and those of you that can't be here, I know you wish you could. And we love you. Please know that I love you so much and pray for so many of you. Uh, last night, early this morning, praying for so many different people. And so I love you. And I uh, love each of us here this morning. So glad that you're here. All right, I'm very excited because, as I said on Wednesday night, I'm going to begin preaching on Jesus. <laughs> well, um, actually, a sermon by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. Over the years, I had the privilege of uh, speaking and preaching expositorily through the book of Matthew twice. Uh, uh, once on Wednesday night, uh, back in the days when we had care groups, and then once on Sunday nights and we were in the other building. But uh, the course that uh, typically as you go through those, especially when we were in our care groups, went through pretty quickly. But uh, never having just kind of taken a little bit of time parking, maybe not as much as our evangelist uh, Tom Harmon <laughs> in a, just a couple of verses there. I'm afraid we'd never preach another passage of the rest of our days here. But, uh, but I'm, we're gonna take this sermon because it's three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we're going to go through it because in it is the single greatest practical manual for living a good life, a harmonious life, a happy life, a peaceful life. Tons, absolutely tons, loads of practical wisdom on a wide variety of all kinds of different topics. We are going to begin to understand the nature of divine wisdom, the incredible power of prayer, how to transform negative attitudes, and so much more. And so you're certainly not going to want to miss even one message for sure. All of these this morning 
were delivered by our Lord, all of the, the truths that we're going to go over over these next weeks, all were delivered by our Lord in one message, one sitting. Now he certainly had addressed these issues before, and he certainly addressed them afterwards. And, but in one message, this group of people there on a Galilean hillside got the most amazing message in the history of the world. I will say this, if we could take the truths of the Sermon on the Mount, and if we could take those and put them into our everyday life, into our marriages, into our finances, into our work, I'm telling you, we would have the greatest revival known to man. And so I am thrilled about this passage. I'm just so excited about launching into it. And especially personally, I'm just excited about kind of slowing down a little on this passage and taking our time to really just dig in. In fact, I have to be careful because once you turn over one stone, you see another that needs to be turned over. And so if you'll pray with me for wisdom, and if you'll just ask God to give us a, a clear mind, we'll turn over the amount of stones we're supposed to, at least for this time as we're going through it. And so would you join me, not only for the prayer for this message today, but would you just ask God for an anointing for each week as we go through here? I'm sure we'll end up going through the Christmas and then... Uh, at some point, we'll pick it up again. But um, let's all bow our heads for a word of prayer. Let's ask God's blessing. And for those of you that are not feeling well, and some here, I know, please know we love you, and we're certainly praying for you. I know your hearts are heavy and uh, fearful. God, would you just right now take away fear, like we sang moments ago, Lord, I will preach to my fear. God, I just preach to it. I pray against it. I pray that, Lord, you just lift us up. And Lord, would you give us an anointing on this passage, not only for today, but in the weeks to come? Would you give us wisdom, when to stop and park for a while, when to move on? Lord, give us insight. And most importantly, Lord, give us a heart that would receive it, no matter how difficult or anti-human it is. Lord, help us to receive it, and by your spiritual grace, help us to apply it. In Jesus' name. The Sermon on the Mount. Every group has its core document. The communists have their manifesto. Western Europe has the Magna Carta. America, the United States of America, has its constitution, its Declaration of Independence. As Christ followers, perhaps, especially here in the New Testament era, this would be our manifesto. This would be our Magna Carta for sure. This is the constitution that we will follow. There are seven features as a good introduction. Jesus begins this great uh, sermon with a wonderful introduction. In sermon verses 1 and 2, uh, and we'll just kind of mention verse 3, but in verses 1 and 2, we're going to find seven features of the sermon on the mount. First of all, we find the substance. Really, what is the foundation? What's the core of what we're going to be talking about? And so let's read together. Let's read it out loud, if you would, please. I want you to kind of be focused here. Verses 1, 2, and 3, Matthew chapter 5. All right. Ready? Let's read it out loud together. Verse number 1. 
And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now in verse number three, we see that word blessed or blessed. Eight different times in these nine first verses, known as the Beatitudes, it is put there. It simply means being, having blessings or happiness, and that is the substance or the goal that Jesus begins with. And as we begin, we need to understand that Jesus loves people. He's happy when we're happy. Now, the kind of happiness that he's talking about is a little different than what the world talks about. But the fact of the matter is, God loves his people to be happy. So you can imagine with me for a few moments, here is Jesus. He begins his sermon, he looks at everybody and he says, God wants you to be happy. Now, almost like a page off of a televangelist there, but the fact is, that's a great way to start. Great introduction. Folks, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have a happy marriage. He wants you to have a happy family. He wants you to be happy in your life. He wants you to be fulfilled. Now, having said that, that is not the way the world is going to tell you how to get it. Jesus says, it's far different than you've been going at it. Because when the world talks about happiness, it is based on what happens. That's what the word comes from. Because of what happens, hap, I have happiness. My circumstances. Typical quotes we hear in the world today would be something like, your happiness is my happiness. Or, my happiness depends on me. Or, Nobody can make you happy unless you are first happy with yourself. All have a little note of uh, truth to them. There are even scientific studies now that display how we can be happy. They've got it down to a so-called science. Sonia Lobermersky, if I get to say that right, a professor of psychology at the UC Riverside, is one of the leading researchers just on this subject of happiness. I read an interesting little statistic by her and I thought, interesting how the world kind of chronicles this. Here's what she said. Happiness is 50% determined by a genetic set point. I thought, man, that's interesting that they would say that. 10% by circumstances. So two-thirds of our life, meaning I can't really do anything about it. It's genetic or it's circumstances. Maybe you can do something about one-third of your life. Friends, that is exactly the opposite of what Jesus says here. He said it is not your genetic set point other than the fact you need to change your sinful nature and get a new nature. And it is not your circumstances. In fact, that is exactly what he's saying. I mean, nobody gets happy when bad things happen. But through it all, there can be this core sense of joy and happiness. God wants everybody. He wants men to be happy. But the Bible is not just about making men happy. God wants women to be happy. 
He wants children to be happy. He wants young people to be happy. He wants every culture, not just Americans, but he wants every culture to be happy. Every generation, not just the millennials or the Gen X or the Mosaic or I forget what the next, the one that coming up is called, but not the boomers, you know. He wants every generation, every gender, the two that there are. He wants uh, everybody to be happy. Jesus starts by saying, God wants you happy. In his first recorded sermon, he said, I want you to be happy. In fact, in verse number 12, he said, here is why. Verse number 12, rejoice, be exceeding glad. Again, he's reiterating his topic here. God wants you to be happy, to be joyful. In fact, not just glad, exceeding glad. I, I want you to be absolutely out of your mind glad. And then he says, here's why. Because you have a reward in heaven. That's the basis there. So now he's setting the standard. He's saying, I know you want me to tell you how to just be happy. I know you want me to tell you just how to have a good time. But he said, I'm going to tell you how that all happiness leads to the fact that we have eternal life in heaven. Let me say it again. God is in the gladness, the happiness business. Jesus clarified this. The decisions, the attitudes that you have will be determined by decisions that you make that follow what scripture says. And that's a recurring theme through chapters 5, 6, and 7. Your happiness, to a degree, depends on the decisions that you make. A disgruntled early American once complained to the well-known Benjamin Franklin, one of the framers of the Constitution. So, where is all this happiness that is the Constitution was supposed to guarantee me? Franklin is said to have responded, my friend, the Constitution only guarantees the American people the right to pursue happiness. It is your responsibility to catch it. <laughs> if you want happiness, you've got to catch it, not just pursue it. And so, first of all, we have the substance of the message, and that is God's way to happiness. Number two, second feature of this great sermon by way of introduction is the situation let's look at the situation verse number one and seeing the multitudes and seeing the multitudes a little background here let's frame this beautiful portrait he said i want you to be blessed the word blessed is makarios it occurs 50 different times in the Textus Receptus New Testament. It means happy, fortunate, well-off, but there is a sense of happiness that is different from the world's happiness. God's concept of blessedness or happiness means it is an established fact, not a fleeting thing. It is a state, not merely a sensation. It is systemic, not just systematic in the sense that I make little choices. It is intrinsic and not extrinsic only. He is simply saying that 
You can have a joy that surpasses anything that happens. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that you're not going to be affected by your circumstances. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be sad or cry or be, have tough times. It just means that because Christ is in your spirit, there is a basic support level that you never go under. Because you have this sense, God's with me. I have an eternal home. And I'm going to keep pushing through this. And God says the blessings will come. For example, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote the general epistles. The general epistles are those to the churches and some individuals like the church at Philippi, the church at Corinth, so forth. Some of the epistles that he wrote were personal epistles known as pastoral epistles. One of them was Timothy. Timothy was the evangelist in Ephesus or a pastor. And he gives him a charge. In chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 11, the apostle Paul said to Timothy, and listen closely, he said, the notice I want to give you to be encouraged, my brother, is the blessed God. The blessed God gives you this encouragement. The idea then is this, that we draw from that. Whatever it is to be blessed, it is true of God. Being blessed then is God-like. By extension then, a sinful person, an ungodly person, can never say, I'm blessed. Now I know worldly people say, oh, I've been blessed. But the truth of the matter is, if you take the word makarios, if you take the word blessed, realize it's a character trait of God, then no person who doesn't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior can ever be blessed. How can you be blessed? You are on your way to hell. You may have some favor in your life. You may have some privileges or benefits, but blessed? No, it's a God word. It is a truly God language. It's kind of like the word hallelujah. You know, hallelujah is an interesting word because it is a, it is a God word. It's a heavenly language. It's not English. It's not Greek or Hebrew, although it's uh, Hebrew in its foundation. It's pretty much the same in every language, Spanish, wherever we've gone. Whenever they say hallelujah, it almost sounds the same. The same thing is true with the word blessed. It is a heavenly language. Then later, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he said pretty much the same thing. Chapter 6 and verse 15, he said God's going to show something. In times, he will show who is the blessed and only potentate, king of kings and lord of lords. Therefore, the only people who can ever be truly blessed are those who know that blessed God. When we know a blessed God, which is his nature, those who have received Christ, that's why in his final earthly hours, our Lord came to his beloved disciple known as John in John 14 and verse 27. John 14 and verse 27, here's what Jesus said to his beloved disciple. He said, peace, John 14, 27, peace I live with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. The same state of contentment. He didn't say, I'm going to give you a supernatural peace. He didn't say, I'm going to give you this amazing human peace. No, he said, I'm going to actually share with you my peace. Since you know me as Savior, since I am in you, 
I'm going to actually give you my peace. That's what Paul was saying. He was saying blessed is means God. You can't be blessed unless you're a born-again Christian. You can't be blessed unless you have God in you. Wow. Jesus up front is looking at these people. He's saying, now, folks, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to have a happy marriage. He wants you to be healthy and have a good life. But up front, I need to tell you something. You will never be blessed unless you have God in you. Because the very word is a God word. The blessedness of getting God is, comes with all these wonderful, amazing things. We've often described salvation as A, B, C. Admit I'm a sinner. I love to, my favorite witnessing tool at this point in my life is the sinner's prayer. I'll ask people, oftentimes, once or twice a week, I'll ask somebody, I'll say, have you ever heard of the most powerful prayer ever? And they'll say, well, you know, um, no, I don't know that I have. The most powerful prayer ever is the sinner's prayer. They say, what is that? And then I'll tell them the story of the two thieves that were on either side of Jesus Christ. One who was proud and who railed on Jesus, but the other one who admitted he was a sinner. A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then C, confess him as your personal Savior. Admit, believe that he died on the cross and rose again, and then confess. A, B, C. And I use that so often. It's as simple as A, B, C. God says, if you will take me as personal Lord and Savior, you can be blessed. The context here then is this. You cannot fill a physical need without a spiritual, uh, without a, with a great spiritual, without having God give you great spiritual strength. People are trying to fill their spiritual needs with physical things. And that doesn't work. Jesus said it doesn't work that way. You've been trying, but it never works that way. Here's a gal who says, oh, you know, I'm having a hard time in my marriage. It's miserable. So I think I'll go out and drink some wine with my girlfriends. And they're happy. But it only is for a couple of hours. Because they're trying to fill a spiritual need with something physical. Same thing is true of a guy. He gets, has a rotten argument with his wife. And he thinks to himself, well, what I'll do is I'll just go buy me a new rod and reel. And it's fun for maybe a few hours or a day out there on the, out there on the river. But pretty soon it goes away. Why? Because you cannot fill a spiritual need with a physical substance. People try to do that all the time. That's exactly what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, rich, wealthy, but Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, you cannot fill a spiritual need with a physical substance. Look at verse 6. In fact, uh, read that with me if you would. Verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He was trying to explain to Nicodemus and the rest of those religious false teachers, especially the Pharisees. He was saying, you will never get to heaven by doing something physical. It doesn't work that way. Externals never 
did something eternal for you. Today, there are pills for everything. I mean everything. It is incredible. Medical science says that there are seven different types of drugs out there, each with its own set of characteristics, effects, and dangers. There are stimulants. There are depressants. There are hallucinogens, disassociatives, opiates, inhalants, and cannabis. Seven different types of drugs. The FDA says there are 41 types of medicines, all from A, you know, and analgesic, all the way to Z, tranquilizers and vitamins, 41 different types of medicines. Folks, we are a nation of pill poppers. The average American takes four prescription drugs a day, plus over-the-counter drugs, plus supplements, plus vitamins. The drug cost of Amer by Americans now is reaching $1 trillion. In fact, our government now is even wanting to mandate making children take certain medicines. Folks, I'm telling you, it is absolutely crazy all the medicine and drugs that are flowing in America. And yet, let me say this. You cannot take a pill for a wounded heart. You cannot take a pill or a drug that will solve a broken relationship. You cannot take a pill that will ever solve an addiction. Why? Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus said, look, you want happiness. A pill's not going to get you happiness. It may give you an hour of happiness or two hours of happiness or at least a, a fog of happiness. But I promise you, you can't fill a spiritual need with a physical substance. And so he starts right off by saying, if you want God or to be blessed, you have to have God. Because that's part of the very sense of what being blessed is. This is going to counter everything that you've ever heard, Jesus said. So he said, I want, you to, I want you to get this in your mind. Now, just for us as we're going through this sermon, let's get a little additional context. There was all kinds of political buzz going on at the time, the first century around Christ. The general populace, first of all, was looking for a Messiah. They desperately wanted a Jewish king who would ride into Jerusalem, who would set them free from all those terrible Romans, would help them. In fact, they were all desiring peace and prosperity. In fact, when they got a sense that Jesus might be the Messiah, he is the Messiah, but when they were still trying to figure it out, they, they tried to make him king. In fact, in John chapter 6, Jesus had fed 5,000. He had fed others. They showed up the next day for food. They were like, he makes food. He's got to be king. And so they, that was the first hope for a socialist society right there. We don't have to work anymore. We have our Messiah. He's just going to give us food every day. Kind of reminds me of the crazy financial policies of our current administration, I must admit. Late one night, a mugger wearing a ski mask jumped into the path of a well-dressed man, stuck a gun in his ribs. Give me your money, he demanded. Indignant, the affluent man replied, 
you can't do this to me. I am a U.S. congressman. Well, in that case, replied the robber, give me my money then. <laughs> they wanted Jesus to be their administration. They had a socialist concept. There were four main groups that were pulling at society. First of all, there were the Pharisees. These were the traditionalists, big on the past, believed that real happiness came only by getting back to the traditions of the fathers. They were second of all the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the liberals. They were said, we have got to do something about Judaism. It is stuck in the past. We've got to bring society modern. We've got to be Greek thinkers. They're the smart ones. They chucked anything that smacked of traditional. Thirdly, there were the Essenes. The Essenes said, hey, the problem is just humanity in general. We are destroying nature. We have got to get back to nature. We've got to seclude ourselves and isolate ourselves. The answer is being geographically separated from everybody else so we can meditate and just commune with nature. The Essenes. Lastly, there were the zealots. Ah, oh, these said, the only way to be happy as a society is to overthrow not only the Romans, but the Greeks. We've got to have a Jewish way of life. Friends, it kind of sounds like 2021 America. We've got people who think that the only answer is to get back to a secular yesteryear, kind of like the Happy Days TV program. There are others like the woke liberals who say society is only going to be happy if we cast off everything that is colonial. And then we've got people who think happiness is an issue of geography. I'm going to move to, I got to be careful here because I know some of you have moved, but uh, I'll be happy if I move to Texas or wherever. You know, folks, I promise you, if you're not happy in California, you will never be happy in Texas. You got to be happy in California. And then if God moves you, that's one thing. But I'll tell you, well, we have people who think that the answer is social justice. We have Pharisees and Sadducees and Essenes and Zealots even today. Jesus threw a wrench in all of these. He's saying, uh, just so you know, that's all external. It's not going to work. That's what he told in Luke chapter 11, verse 39. Jesus addressing the Pharisees said, um, you're making clean the outside of the cup, but your inward part is full of ravening and wickedness. The Sermon on the Mount is an inside job. Happiness is an inside job. You will never meet a spiritual need with a physical substance. In his book, Living Life on Purpose, Greg Anderson shows the story of one man journey to joy. A choice, a spiritual choice. His wife had left him. His faith in himself was at an all-time low. He did not like people. He was bitter at God. And frankly, he found no joy in living and was depressed. One rainy morning, he went to a small neighborhood restaurant for breakfast. Although several people were there, nobody was really speaking to everybody else. And there he was, hunched over his food at the counter, stirring his coffee with his spoon. 
In one of the small booths along the window, a young mother and her little daughter were there. They had just been served when all of a sudden the little girl broke the silence with her cheerful, almost shouting voice, Mama, why don't we say our prayers? And the waitress who had just served their breakfast turned around and said, Well, sure, honey, we'll pray. Let's just pray right now. And so that waitress of that small diner looked at everybody, not a lot of them, but everybody in the restaurant and said, Hey, everybody, bow your heads. And surprisingly, everybody's head went down. The little girl bowed her head, folded her hands, and said, God is great. God is good. We thank him for our food. Amen. The man who was writing the story said, I couldn't believe it. He said, the atmosphere in that little diner absolutely transformed. One prayer, one little girl just changed everything. In fact, the waitress said, I think we ought to do that every morning here in this place. My whole frame of mind began to change just by the prayer of that little girl. I began to realize that if I can pray about it and stop obsessing about all of my problems, I started to choose happiness. Folks, happiness is an inside job. Now let's look a little deeper at the frame of reference here. Verse number one, and seeing the multitudes and seeing the multitudes. By the way, Jesus always sees people. He sees them, whether they come from the south or the north or the east or the west. He sees them. He saw them as hungry, and he gave them food. He saw them as thirsty, and he gave them drink. He saw them as sick, and he gave them healing. And when he saw the spiritual hunger of their hearts, he did and gave the deepest thing that was in him. He gave them what they really needed most, hope for the future. It's been a few years since we've done this couple, I think. But one of Pauline and I favorite thing to do is used to be able to go to the San Francisco. It's kind of challenging over there right now with recent uh, kind of way it is. But, but we used to love to go there, especially to the pier. And uh, we had a little tradition. We'd get something to drink. I'd get a coffee. She'd maybe get a latte or something. And we'd sit there and we would people watch. And it's always a lot of fun. There's all kinds of kooky people, for sure. We love them, but I mean, they're kind of kooky. There are people that are interesting and very unique. And of course, uh, we love to giggle at the little children, having so much fun. And sometimes we would talk to some people, especially the elderly. It was always fun. That seems to be where, who's always sitting next to me. But we would love it. But it's interesting to me. It seems like every time we people watch, wherever there are masses, wherever there's a huge groups of people, the same thing goes on in my heart. I get this sense. I feel happy seeing people be happy, but I get this sense. I wonder how many of them know Jesus. I feel so sad. My heart begins to just ache. Like here are all these people eating their life stream, having fun, enjoying the outside. And yet do they know Jesus? Do they know the Lord? Are they sure they're going to heaven? That's got to be, that's the feeling I'm sure God must have put in my heart, because I'm sure it's not human. That must have been what Jesus felt there on that sermon. When he saw this masses beginning to come, his heart began to say, folks, you need God in your life. And I'm going to tell you how to get it into your life. And so if you have him, it will be change everything. The substance, 
the situation. Now, number three, the speaker. Let's talk about the preacher himself. Verse number one, and seeing. Thank God Jesus sees the multitude. Nobody is overlooked by Jesus. He sees. He sees the multitudes, not just the uppity ups, but the down lows. He sees everyone, male, female. He sees them all. He sees the multitude. But it says he went up into a mountain. The speaker went up into a mountain. Ah, what a public speaker our Lord was. Very unique, distinct in style. In fact, so distinct, it was, that was what was always known about him. You may recall in John chapter 7, in verse number 46, the temple officers tried to defend themselves against those crazy Pharisees. And they said, look, I'm telling you, we would have arrested him. We would have brought him to you, but he's different. In fact, here's what they said in his tone, in his topic. The officers answered, never a man spoke like this man. And oh yes, can you imagine the Sermon on the Mount? Here is a man unlike any other man preaching. Preaching on a mountain, here he is, preaching, magnificent. His subject transitions were magnificent. He was a master preacher at work. I love to watch anybody who's a master craftsman. I'll watch those concrete guys out there. I mean, it's amazing. Not too long ago, we went to South Lake Tahoe, I think it was, and we saw a fellow making beautiful pictures with cans of spray paint. He was a young guy, and it was kind of like the idea of graffiti, but he made these amazing pictures. I mean, sports pictures and pictures of American, early American history. I was like, how in the world can you just, it was just a plain old spray cans, and they had all these devices. Well, amazing, a master. I love watching anybody who's a master at what they do. That's why I love these wonderful musicians and singers we have. Oh, just master. Jesus was a master preacher. It says in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas were so filled with the Spirit of God. In verse number one, it says, and it came to pass in Iconium, that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and spake. No, that's not what it says. It says, and so spake. The manner in which they spoke was so unique, was so amazing. I mean, it just shook that area plainly, wisely, passionately. Maybe that's why Pastor Isaiah in chapter 49 of the book of Isaiah, verse 2, he knew God was shaping him and sharpening and perfecting his message because God's people needed to know that God had a plan for them. Verse number two, and he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword. He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, distinct, definite in his preaching and direct. When Hugh Latimer was preaching one day in the presence of Henry VIII, it is reported that someone said, Latimer, Remember, the king is here. Be careful what you say. Then Latimer, the well-known preacher, said these words to himself. Latimer, Latimer, remember, the king of kings is here. Be careful what you do not say. And how we ought to be careful about what we say and do not say. And so our speaker, preacher Jesus, was unflinching in his faithfulness. The substance, happiness, 
The situation, multitudes, the speaker, a faithful preacher named Jesus. Now the setting, number four. Look again at verse number one. He went into a mountain. Now it is said that that Greek phrase there is definite, meaning the mountain or a mountain that was well known. This mountain was there in the southern foothills of the Galilee, overlooking the rippling waters of the Sea of Galilee. The beginning of the River Jordan would be flowing down towards the Dead Sea. You can only imagine being there on this mountain. Multitudes of people scattered around. Jesus speaks. Now it was a mountain, but it certainly wasn't a beautiful mountain like Mount Hermon, 9,000 feet. It was not a mountain like Gerizim or one of the others well-known mountains that had maybe the tabernacle there or something. No, it was only a mountain. It was only the mountain because Jesus preached there. Jesus made the mountain. And yet today we have people who worship the mountains instead of the God who made the mountains. In Isaiah chapter 52 and verse number 7, the prophet Isaiah announced, how beautiful on the mountains, on the mountains, not the mountains. Yeah, we love mountains, but it's beautiful on the mountains, the feet of them that bring good tidings, good tidings that publish peace, bringing good tidings of good, that publish salvation. What was Isaiah talking about? He was saying, What a glorious moment it is to know that God is going to bring Israel out of Babylon. Ah, but there's something more that he was saying. And we know that because nearly a thousand years later, the great apostle Paul said the same phrase. In fact, quoting Isaiah when he talked about the gospel in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them who bring preach the gospel of peace. Where? On the mountains, in the valleys. What makes a mountain beautiful? The feet of those who preach the gospel. What makes a valley beautiful? What makes the beach beautiful? It is only those who speak the gospel. That's what God is saying here. It is great because of what happens there. That's the point. In Psalm 121, David was in hazard for his life. King David was being, had many enemies. And in Psalm 121, verse 1, he said, I lift up my eyes unto the hills. From whence cometh my help? You always have some liberal uh, person, some liberal church will say, yes, I just looked to the mountains and found peace. Well, I'm sure there, are, there is a sense of beauty and peace at the order of mountains and beach and so forth. But that's not what these verses are saying, because it says in the next verse, verse two, my help cometh from the Lord, which made the mountains, which made heaven and earth. I don't get help from mountains. Now, whether he's talking about in a mountain or big, uh, uh, strong, you know, countries or people, whatever the case, here he is saying that it is Jesus that makes nature beautiful. Genesis speaks of creation, the creating of a son. Revelation tells of a place that needs no son. Genesis speaks of an entrance of sin into the world. The book of Revelation tells of the banishment of all sin. Genesis speaks of the tree of life. Revelation speaks 
of the admission of the tree of life into that tree of life. Yes, Jesus changes everything. That's the point. He is the one who makes the setting. The substance, the situation, the speaker, the setting, and now the style. And when he was set, and when he was set, that just means sat down. Sitting down was the traditional way a rabbi would teach. When a rabbi would walk around, it was unofficial. But when he sat on the stool, on the chair, it became official. When a judge, for example, walks into a courtroom, that's not official. When a court might go over and speak to someone there in the court. But when he sits down, and that's why they call it a sitting judge. That's when he begins to preside over the situation. He's been nominated. He's been elected. He's been appointed. Whatever the case is, he is a fish. That's his official capacity. When you sit, you're able to judge. Jesus was a sitting judge over this earth. And so when he sat there, he was like this glorious judge who was judging this world. In fact, it says in Malachi chapter 3 and verse number 3, that glorious last chapter, book of the Old Testament, it says in verse 3, he shall sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi. That's us. Everyone that gets born again is a son of Levi. We have been grafted into the tribe of Israel and become spiritual priests unto God. Jesus the sitting judge is here to purge away the dross from the sons of Levi. God wants to make us holy and make us happy by doing so. King David in Psalm chapter 9 suffered so much injustice, but never did he ever was done wrong by the sitting judge. Psalm 9 and verse 4, thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Why? Because you sat in the throne judging right. Jesus sat. Now, normally when a preacher speaks, at least here in America, they, they stand up. Jesus sat like a sitting judge proclaiming, you folks need to listen to what I'm saying because this is not just some kind of hearsay or an opinion. I'm telling you what I'm telling you is from God himself. Look at verse number two. Let's go to that, back to chapter five of the book of Matthew, verse two. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. He opened his mouth. He raised his voice louder than usual. He spoke with power and freedom like one having authority. I'm not going to mince words, folks, and I don't want anybody to miss what I'm saying. He spoke loudly and clearly. In Isaiah 58 and verse number one, God renews Isaiah's commission. And he said, now, I don't want you to pull any punches when you're out there preaching. Look what he says in Isaiah 58 and verse one. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Show my people their transgressions. Don't mince your words, pastor. Tell them like it is. And when you're calling people out of a burning house, you, we don't need girly men. We need men who will stand and lift up their voice. Clearly, they used to say about the fiery Billy Sunday, who was very pointed in his preaching, they used to say, oh, you're rubbing the fur the wrong way. He said, well, then turn the cat around. It'll be all right. <laughs> Jesus, later in Matthew chapter 7, it says that he taught them, verse 29, he taught them as one 
having authority, not as one of the scribes, because he believed what he said. He was serious. And folks, with so much at stake, these false teachers were waffling on everything. Jesus was clear. He was never mean. He was never angry. He wasn't throwing a temper tantrum, but he spoke firmly against the deception of Satan. Oh, the powerful, powerful teaching of a judge. Just one word changes everything. An unknown author gave this summary of the Bible in 50 words. Listen to it. God made, Adam bit, Noah arced, Adam split, Joseph ruled, Jacob fooled, Bush talked, Moses balked, Pharaoh plagued, people walked, sea divided, tablets guided, promise landed, Saul freaked, David peaked, prophets warned, Jesus born, God walked, love talked, anger crucified, hope died, love rose, spirit flamed, word spread, God remained. <laughs> There's the Bible in 50 words. You talk about power. Jesus stood up here and he spoke, maybe not a million words, but his words were powerful. The substance, the situation, the speaker, the setting, the style. Now, number six, the seekers. Who were the recipients of this amazing serpent? Look what it says in verse number one. His disciples came unto him. Now, usually when we think of the Sermon on the Mount, we think that Jesus was speaking to the multitudes and he loved the multitudes and he cared about the multitudes and he included them in his preaching, but his the ones he was speaking to was not his multitude. It was his disciple. Disciples is the Greek word mathetes, M-A-T-H, math. The same word, we get our English word for mathematics. It means one who intentionally learns by observation and application. Who are those that get the most out of the Sermon on the Mount? Those who just simply way off in the background, just kind of listening to him? No, those who are the disciples, who are willing to not only listen, but observe and do. That's what King David said in Psalm 25. He said, you know what I've learned over the years? Verse 9, the meek will he teach his way. You know, if you're talking when you should be listening, when you're distracted, when you should be attracted you're going to miss the message. Many people came to hear Jesus because he was giving cures. Some came because they thought, well, maybe you'll give us some more food. But Jesus said, I want everybody to hear what I'm here to say, that the words that I'm talking about aren't going to do you any good unless you're a mathetes, unless you're a disciple, unless you're willing to do something about it. You know, many liberal theologians through the years have tried to take the Sermon on the Mount and make it into a social gospel. They said, we must eradicate the slums, the poor. Education needs to be brought up. Alcoholism and crime and war needs to be put out. And all that is important. But at the same time, they often overlook the doctrines of sin and salvation, heaven and hell. And they all get lost in the shuffle. Jesus who lived in one of society's most corrupt moments, did not preach to these people about social justice or education or about all the problems going on. 
He taught them the gospel. He taught them the bread of life. In John chapter 6, Jesus was in Capernaum. People flocked to him looking for some food. And look what he said in verse number 35. And Jesus said, revolt. No. Go against the Romans. No. Rise up. No. We need more education. No. He said, I am the answer. I know you want food, but I'm the bread of life. You know, sometimes people who come to churches like this, beautiful churches, large churches, big facilities, cost lots of money, lots of money to maintain. Sometimes they say, you know, why don't you just take that money and give it to the poor? Folks, I'm telling you, if we had enough money to buy everyone on earth a meal in several hours, they'd be hungry again. But folks, these people don't need soap or soup. They need salvation. They need Jesus. He is the answer. And that's what he said. It is said in the former USSR under godly, godless socialism, two men, one a Marxist, the other a Christian were speaking. They are watching people pass by. The communist said to the Christian as he watched a man poor walking by, he said, communism will give that man a new coat and he'll be happy tonight. The Christian looked at that man and said, Jesus will give that man a new heart and he'll be happy forever. Jesus is the answer and that's the seekers. Now finally, the substance, happiness, the situation, there are multitudes. He loves them all. The speaker, brilliant preacher. The setting, here they were. We know what the setting was, the style, the seekers, and the sense. Verse number two, he opened his mouth and he taught them. He wasn't going to hold anything back. The sense is that he was going to give them the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He didn't hold back. He opened his mouth. Now, Jesus often spoke without talking. He spoke through a holy and exemplary life. In fact, we're told that when he was being taken to the cross, it says he was like a lamb led to the slaughter and he opened not his mouth. But here he opened his mouth. Some have said, well, you know what? You don't have to ever speak up about God. Just live it. But the evidence of scripture is actually exactly the opposite. Speak, live it. Yes, speak it for sure. Solomon, for example, in Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 1 says, Does not wisdom cry and understanding put forth her voice? If you've got wisdom and you want people to have wisdom, we have to cry out and put it forth. I once knocked on a door. In fact, it was this summer. Pastor Mike and I were out giving out some tracts and some little nice, very well-made, beautiful invitations to some community events and, of course, an invitation at church. And usually, those are always well-reserved, well-received, but uh, every once in a while, they're not. Nobody was home with this particular door. I had left a little note on. And as I was walking away, some crazed man came to the door, swung open his door, and yelled out, why do you people do this? I don't come to your door. Now, I know somehow that made sense to him. Uh, first of all, I wouldn't care if he came to my door. That'd be fine. You have something to give. But the fact is, what did he have to give? What does a person 
who doesn't know Jesus have to give to a community. But when you have Jesus, you have something to give. And Jesus opened his mouth and we give out the blessed word. Jesus taught them exactly according to the great prophecy in Isaiah 54 and verse 13. One of my favorite verses I claim for my family. Isaiah 54 and verse 13. All of thy children shall be taught of the Lord. Now I wish I could teach all my children everything that needs to be taught. I wish I could teach all of my grandchildren everything that needs to be taught. I wish I could teach all of my great-grandchildren and those to come everything that they need to know. But I'm so glad for the promise that all of my children shall be taught of the Lord. The Lord teaches them. I'll do my part. I'll lift my voice up. But I can't teach them all they need to know. But thank God the blessed Holy Spirit will teach my children. And great, hallelujah, and great shall be the peace of thy children. My life, my words, my attitudes are used by God to speak. And great peace comes to thy children. And that's what people want. Jesus looked at this crowd and he said, folks, I know you want happiness. I know you do. He looked over there and said, Benjamin, I know you want to be happy with your wife. He looked over there and said, I know you want to have a great business. And looked at the young people. I know you want to get married and have children. He looked at all of them and he said, folks, I know everybody here on this mountain wants to be happy. And I want you to know God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be blessed, which is a little different than happy. Because blessed is a God thing. And you can never be blessed unless God is in you. And you have his word living in you. Are you a disciple? Are you a mathetes? Are you one who puts it into practice? Then he said, I promise you, things will transform in your life. You'll be so blessed. You know, they often ask people, what would you like most in this world? Sometimes people will say money or relationships or whatever, health. But do you know the number one answer in any country? When they ask, what would you most like? You know what the number one answer is? Peace. Most people want peace. They want peace in their marriage. They want peace in their home. They want financial peace. They want peace in the country. They want peace in the world. Everybody wants peace. Isaiah said, when the Lord teaches you, great will be your peace and the peace of your children. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning. What a great beginning to the Sermon on the Mount. It is something for everybody, but it's for those who specifically want God to bless them, and only God can. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.